I was talking to a friend last night who was in town. He was telling me about uh, a trip he took with his son where they went canoeing um, along the boundary waters of uh, Canada and the United States. And it was a trip for kind of uh, high school age Boy Scouts. So this trip involved a lot of canoeing and then you would come to a boggy place and you'd have to get out of the water and carry your canoe for a while and then get back in the water. And, and as he was uh, talking about the trip as he was being driven there by the guide, the guy told him, yeah, this will be a lot of fun for you. And my friend's like, well, what do you mean by fun? He said, well, there's, there's type one fun and there's type two fun. You know, type one fun is the kind of fun you have when you're actually, you're enjoying what you're doing. And type two fun is when you look back at something, you say, oh, yeah, that was fun. And the further you get away from it in time, the more fun it seems because you've forgotten all the pain when you were carrying the canoe over a mile of hilly terrain to get to your next watering place. You know, memory is a funny thing like that, right? And the, the further things get in the distance, the further we can maybe forget what was painful about a thing and, and kind of maybe want to go back. Remember with fondness what was fun, even as we suffered, while well, he said you were carrying a, a spine-crushing canoe through the weeds. And in the scriptures, we see examples of this kind of distorted memory, don't we? With Israel and their experience in Egypt, right? They had they had freedom from Egypt, and they were in the wilderness, and yet they longed to be back, right? They, they told about how wonderful it was to have all the fruit and produce of meat of Egypt while they were wasting away in the wilderness, you know, subtly overlooking the fact that they were enslaved and oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Because of the way memory had distorted things, they wanted to return to slavery. They had a nostalgic view of their negative condition in the past and wanted to go back. Well, today Paul writes to people who are in that same situation of being tempted and maybe, you know, wandering in the wilderness, thinking back to some, some golden days, some time when they wanted to return to when it was easier or a time when maybe the world made more sense. These Galatian Christians he's writing to seem to want to go back to a kind of slavery, he says. They've been set free but now they want to re-enslave themselves by trying to justify themselves by works of the law. And so Paul writes these uh, passages we're going to look at, Galatians chapter 4, 8 and following. He writes in order to make a series of appeals to them not to go back to slavery. In some sense, that's the whole passage. It's a very simple message. Stand firm in your freedom. Don't go back to slavery. That's Paul's big objective as he writes to these Galatians. Don't be fooled by, by your distorted memory. Don't be fooled by the, the practical ease that's offered for you in law keeping. Don't be fooled. Instead, stand firm in the freedom Christ has purchased for you. And to make this point, he tries a few different strategies, let's say. He makes three different appeals in the passage to make this one big point, stand firm in freedom. So the first kind of appeal he makes is to ask them kind of an exasperated question. How could you think, now that you've been found by God, of becoming lost again? That's how he starts his appeal. How could you think of going back? That's his first argument. If God has found you, how could you think of becoming lost again? And then he switches in his second point also to make a personal appeal, but this time rooted in his relationship. His, his second appeal is something like this. Become as I am, sold out for the gospel. It's an appeal to Paul's relationship with them. So he recounts the way that they received him at great cost to them and the way he has loved them with costly love. He goes, makes the bold move as a man of comparing himself to a woman in labor for them, right? He's saying, look how much I have sold out to love you. Become like I am. Sell out for the gospel. So that's his second plea in the passage. And then his final plea is in some ways the strangest. He says, remember your birth story. Paul takes us on a winding journey, beginning with Sarah and Hagar, Abraham's two wives, or his wife and his slave. And he tells us this story, and he gets from Sarah and Hagar to us people today. And he, he says, remember that you're not a child of the slave woman. You were born of the free, and so don't return to slavery. That's his final plea, is remember your birth story. 
So today we're going to walk through those three pleas of Paul as he makes this big point, stand firm in your freedom. The first one again is, how could you think of becoming lost again? Secondly, become like I am, sold out for the gospel. And finally, remember your birth story. So again, this first appeal, how could you think of becoming lost again? Again, it's a kind of exasperation. Look at where you are now. How could you think of going back? Paul describes them as going from knowing, not knowing God to knowing God, of being slaves to being free, with this question in mind, how could you think of becoming lost again? So let's read verses 8 through 11 to see this first plea from Paul. He says, this is Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you that. Galatians 4, 8. If you're wanting to use the Bible, we provided you can turn to page 974. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you think, I mean, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored in vain over you. So first, Paul highlights this tragic slavery that the Galatians came from. They were enslaved to those things that by nature are not gods. He calls them the weak and worthless principles of the world, which is an idea that came up in last week's passage. So that's the first description of their tragic state, their former state. And then verse 9, he says that they uh, have come now come to know. So they've gone from being ignorant and enslaved to now having come to know something. Come to know God or rather be known by God. And the implied description of people here is that they're, they're lost, right? That they are, they are enslaved and they don't know God. That's something that I think is, a, is, is reason why that lost word that we use to describe people who don't know Christ is so apt. It's a, it's a kind of being so far gone that you don't even know how far gone you are. When we, we describe people in, with that term lost, we're speaking to their enslavement to sin, and we're speaking to what they, they don't know about God. We're speaking to the way that sin blinds us so that we don't even know what we don't know. And part of the reason, or the part of the evidence for this is that Paul says we imagine that we can save ourselves through rule keeping by observing days and months and seasons of years, which is a way of describing the ritual feasts of Judaism. So under sin's captivity, we believe the fantasy that there's something we can do or achieve in this fallen world that will deliver us from this fallen world. But it's, it's deception to believe that. It's lostness. It's enslavement. It's not knowing. It's ignorance. But this kind of slavery that Paul describes, this former state, this state of lostness, it's, it's more sinister than if you were kind of literally in a jail, right? If you're, you're literally in a jail, you know it. You see the bonds. You see the bars. But in our lostness, we imagine that we're free. In our lostness, we think that there is joy and life in sin. That's what it means to be lost. So Paul uses these two great descriptions, slavery and ignorance. Formerly, you did not know God. You were enslaved. He uses those two descriptions to show the Galatians how they've been transformed. He's essentially saying that's how you used to be, but that's not who you are now. Formerly, you didn't know God, but now you've come to know him. That's the transition that every true Christian has made. We've gone from ignorance to knowledge, from slavery to freedom. So we should ask, well, how does that happen? The simple answer is we we come to know God. We go from ignorance to knowledge by looking at Jesus. Jesus is the one sent by the Father who reveals God. And so by looking at Jesus with the eyes of faith, we can know God. We're kind of building on what Paul preached to us last week. So first, Jesus reveals the righteousness of God. We see this in the way that Jesus obeyed obediently, the way he confronted the Jewish leaders, and he rebuked them. 
the way that he was born under the law and obeyed the law perfectly. So we learn of God's righteousness as we see Jesus live and as we hear him teach. And ultimately, we see God's righteousness through Christ's death on the cross, where disobedience is punished. In Christ's suffering and death, we see what the righteous judgment of God against sin looks like, because Jesus was crucified for our sin. So in Christ on the cross, we see what our selfishness and our false worship rightly deserves. Jesus shows us God's righteousness. But he not only shows us that, he also shows us God's love. Remember, he's the son of God who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life to free us from our slavery. He came to show God's mercy and God's forgiveness of sin by taking on the punishment for sin that we deserve. So because of his love, Christ came to save us, to save us from the wrath of God, and to do that by laying down his life. And we see that greater love has never been shown than that. Jesus laying down his life for his enemies. So by looking at Jesus, we know God's love. To say we know God through Christ, though, doesn't simply mean that Jesus transmits accurate information about God. He does do that, but the knowledge Paul's talking about here is much more than that. By believing in his death in our place, we come to know God the way a child knows his mother's love. We know and experience God's love in a personal way. By faith, we're forgiven. By faith, we're counted righteous in Christ. By faith, we go from ignorance to knowledge. We go from slaves to being sons. We come to know God by faith. No one comes to this knowledge through their own. You can't acquire this knowledge by going to the library or Googling it. You don't come to this knowledge by observing Jewish religious rituals or any other man-made laws. The only way to go from ignorance and lostness into the true knowledge of God is by faith in Jesus Christ, the one God sent. Paul says that formerly the Galatians did not know God, but now they've come to know him because they believe the gospel. Now, when you think about knowing, that's something we do. It could give the impression that this is all an act of us, right? We somehow gin up this faith so that we can know God. But even as Paul's recounting this great transformation, you went from not knowing to knowing, he interrupts himself. He says the great transformation is not something that you've done, It's the work of God himself. The big change is that now God knows you. Look how he interrupts himself in verse 9. But you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. When we look at it this way, we begin to see how knowledge of God is God's work, his gracious work. It is by his gracious knowing of us that we come to know him. This is, again, what we were looking at last week. when We saw that God sent his spirit and his son into the world to redeem and adopt us. So we can know God, not because we've climbed our way to heaven, but because God has come near to save us. That's what our hope is in. Our hope is ultimately not in our ability to get faith for ourselves, but in God. God sending his son to die in our place, God giving us new hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are known by God as his children. He calls us his sons. And so Paul would ask the Galatians, how did you come to know God? And how did God make you his child? Did he make you his child by commanding you to be circumcised? Did you become a son of God by praying the rosary? Was it some other thing? Did you put together 30 days in a row of Bible reading and prayer? Was that how you became a son of God? Is that how God knew you? How did God make you his own? 
would probably say, certainly not to all those things, right? I didn't make myself a child of God. Rather, God knew me. He sent his son to die for me. He sent his spirit into my heart. So now I cry out to him, Abba, Father, I call on him as a son because God knows me. If we were ignorant and have come to know God by faith in Christ, and if we, are in, we were enslaved but now we're sons, then Paul would ask us, why would we ever abandon that? If we've seen this great transformation happen, how could we imagine going back to lostness? Paul is saying, look at where you are. Look at the marvelous grace God's poured out in your heart. What sense does it make to try to undo all that, try to roll back the clock to return to some former state, the way of slavery? If you were to do that, Paul said to the Galatians, I would have labored in vain. If that's where you're going to end up, then my preaching among you is worthless. If they were to do that, if someone is to abandon this gospel message, it's not proof that they were saved and lost their salvation. It's proof that they were never saved. They never truly believed. They were never made sons or known by God. Well, we might ask, what are the signs that we might be in danger of returning to slavery? One way we could evaluate ourselves is to ask, what's the source of my joy or despair? Is my mood tied to my performance? So do I feel chipper and lighthearted when I've had a, a good run of avoiding my besetting sins? Is my happiness or my disposition tied to how well I feel I've been doing at obeying God? Or is it tied to how productive I've been this week? Now, there should be joy in obedience, and we should not take our sin lightly. And there's nothing wrong with being satisfied with the hard days of good work. But we should still ask ourselves, do I feel more pleasure with feelings of personal success and accomplishment than I do in the gospel? Do I rejoice more in God's love to me in Christ or my own sense of self-worth? Do I find joy in repentance and God's forgiveness? Or do I find joy only when I feel like I'm being righteous on my own effort? Is my heart full of Christ in the way he's loved me? Or is my heart full of my own ambitions? Our joy and despair may reveal whether we are enslaved to our old idols and trust, or whether we're trusting in the gospel. Another way to get at this same question is to ask, how do you think about and judge other brothers and sisters in Christ? So is your assessment of them rooted in God's word and the gospel, or do you have your own set of standards? If someone doesn't meet your standards, do you kind of practically just dismiss them and, and move along from them? Do you functionally write them off? It's clear that here in Galatia, the problem was more than just a few individual Christians who were tempted to re-enslave themselves. He's writing to these churches. These churches were in danger of drifting away together. These churches were in danger of setting standards for what a Christian is that were unbiblical and anti-gospel. So if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We, we can start saying, well, this brother over here doesn't see all the political or ethical implications of the gospel the way I do, so therefore he's not a Christian anymore. I'm suspect of his profession because we don't line up on all these things. We have to ask, do our standards for others reveal that something else besides the gospel or something in addition to the gospel is what really saves people? Paul has described this great transformation by the gospel. He's described it by saying we come to know God and be known by God. So we could wrap up this first point by asking the two questions this way. Are you trying to know God apart from Christ and his righteousness counted to you? Are you trying to know God apart from the love of Christ? Or are you trying to live the Christian life in such a way that you are resisting depending 
on the love of God, the love that he poured out on you through the Son and the Spirit? Are you resisting depending on God's love? Paul says that living like that is a return to slavery and ignorance. And he pleads with us, see how far you've come. How can you even think of returning to lostness? So that's Paul's first plea. We see a second plea in verses 12 through 20, where Paul calls the Galatians to become like I am. What I think he means is become like I am, sold out for the gospel. Here we find the first command to the Galatians that Paul gives in the letter. It's a plea to live in the freedom of justification by faith, and I think a plea to work hard to see each other grow in this freedom. Again, a plea to become like I am, to be sold out for the gospel. To become like I am, we need to understand what Paul has said about who he is in this letter to the Galatians. So in chapter 1, he kind of gave some of his biography, and he recounted how he had left his old way of life in Judaism. In chapter 2, he said that he had died to the law so that he might live to God. And then in chapter 3, he said that he is no longer under the law, but justified by faith in Christ. Part of what Paul is doing is he's tracing his own story and saying, I was once like one of you. I was trying to be justified by the law, and I tried harder than all of my contemporaries in Judaism. But now, I've abandoned all those foolish attempts, that worthless way of life, and now I know that I am justified by faith in Christ. He said, you Galatians, follow my example. You're you're where I once was, trying to be justified. Now follow me, become like I am, give up all of that, that fake righteousness for the only true righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. Count it all worthless, for the sake of knowing Christ. Let's read these verses, verses 12 through 20, to see this second plea. Verses uh, verses 12 through 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but receive me as an angel of God, as, Jesus, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul shows here he's devoted to them. He's devoted to them with the truth of the gospel, but he also shows he's devoted to them in love. He's in anguish, the anguish of childbirth over them. He's pouring himself out. He's sold out for the gospel, both in 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 telling them the truth, and even willing to risk relationship to press the truth home to them. He loves them, and he's working hard to help them come back to the gospel. He reminds the Galatians of how they loved him, how they joyfully received him back when he first came to preach the gospel to them. He says they received him as if they were receiving Christ himself. We don't know any historical specifics about the ailment or injury that Paul had, but he calls it a trial to them. So something that he had going on was a burden to them, and they patiently bore with him, they cared for him, and they, were, they called themselves blessed to receive the gospel that he preached. So it's clear that Paul can recall the time when the Galatian church's love for him was evident. They called themselves blessed to hear his gospel. And then Paul describes his own love for them, again, like a woman in labor. And here he contrasts himself to the false teachers who were making much of the Galatian Christians, but for no good purpose. They maybe were flattering them, but he's saying that their flattery of you is actually shutting you out from the gospel. But Paul loved them. He's anguishing over them, laboring like a woman in labor because he wants to see Christ formed in them. Paul doesn't have any sinful ulterior motives. He wants to see Christ in them. And so he labored over them once, 
preaching the gospel through illness and injury, and now he's laboring over them again. But he's perplexed about them. So he remembers this time when this relationship was marked by deep and sacrificial love, but it's clear that this relationship is now strained, perhaps to the breaking point. And at the center of this breakdown, he says, is the truth. He says that's is that in verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? So the message that, that once united them, they were blessed to hear his message at the, at the first when he preached the truth to them. Now it's tearing them apart. And he's confused by them. He doesn't want to have to be so harsh in his letter. He wishes he could be with them. But even as he speaks this way, he's not given up. That's the point of saying, become as I am. He's saying, you've wandered from the truth. But you don't have to stay where you are. You can once again come to know the joy of being justified by faith. Become as I am. Become dead to the law and alive to God by faith in Christ. Renew your faith. Come to Jesus. The second appeal reveals the depth of Christian love. This paragraph, I think, is a very candid picture of what our relationships in the church may look like. It looks like laboring with each other for the truth of the gospel and maturity in Christ. Of being sold out for the gospel so that we love each other with it. Again, it's clear that this relationship between Paul and the Galatians, it's, it's complicated. It's, it's emotional. It has a long backstory. He says they once would have gouged out their eyes for him, but now they're mad at him. They once received the gospel with joy, but now the truth makes them enemies of Paul, or is in danger of it. It's perplexing. But even as Paul makes this appeal, he's not doing so to manipulate them emotionally. He's not kind of putting his relational pain out there as a a driving force. The thing at the center of his appeal is the gospel. That's what he wants them to grasp, the truth that he's preaching. His major goal is, is to present them mature in Christ, that Christ should be formed in them. Now, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have relational strains or breakage, but we don't live in a perfect world. And this passage helps us see that the Apostle Paul also did not live in a perfect world. And if this is what Paul's relationships were like, I think it should help us expect that ours may at times be like this too. We may struggle with each other. We may sometimes be confused by each other. We may have people who, were, who are brothers and sisters who we were once really close to, who we rejoiced together with them over the gospel, and yet now who are wandering away from the gospel and who get mad at us when we tell them the truth of the gospel. But they need someone to come alongside them and tell them that truth, to do what Paul's saying. Don't turn to slavery and ignorance. Don't turn back to lostness. We need to be the kind of church where we can do that for each other and yet recognize, as Paul puts on display, these are hard conversations to have. But though this passage is honest about this difficulty, it's not cynical. Paul is not saying, I give up on you, you stubborn idiots. Right? That's the kind of thing we would say. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he says he's still in the present. He's still in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. This is what Christians do in our relationships with each other. We labor and work to help each other know Christ more and to become more like Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, at the end, Paul describes his ministry like this. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works in me. So Paul toils and struggles, granted with all Christ's energy, but he toils and struggles to present his brothers and sisters mature in Christ. There's an English pastor named Dick Lucas, who's a famous preacher, and he said, there's no indication that Paul was immediately conscious of God's strength surging within him. What he was aware of was the sweat of hard labor in the service of the Lord. It was agony rather than ecstasy to do this work properly. 
Christian love is hard-working love. It's working hard for the goal of Christ formed in each other. So this second appeal is like two appeals wrapped into one. An appeal to stand firm in the gospel of justification by faith alone. And it's appeal to endure in love for each other with the gospel. It's an appeal that's rooted in the conviction that the gospel is the only means for true joy in God. The truth of the gospel is the only hope any of us have. And so Paul's example urges us, don't grow weary in doing good to each other. Keep striving and preaching the gospel to yourself and to each other, to your brothers and sisters in the church, with the goal of seeing Christ formed in each other. Do you have a vision for this kind of Christian life? You know, this work of the ministry is not only meant for Paul and the apostles. It's not just meant for me and Tim and the people who are pastors of the church. This is the work of the ministry that God has called everyone in this room who's a Christian to do. I hope that when you think about your involvement in our church, you think of it in these terms. So, so why do you come to church? Why did you come here today? Well, I know you came here because you wanted to worship God for yourself. You wanted to hear from God. But I hope you also came here to love others because you wanted to see Christ formed in your brothers and sisters here. That's one of the main reasons we come to church, to edify each other. When you sing a hymn in church, I hope it's because your heart is overflowing with your joy in the gospel and your praise to God. That's a good reason to sing a hymn. But you should also sing that hymn to encourage the people around you, to encourage them in the gospel truths that you're singing. So that's why you should sing loudly when you sing hymns, because you're singing to God and to your sister across the aisle. You're singing to edify and build up so that Christ will be formed in your brothers and sisters. When you go to a small group Bible study, no doubt you go for yourself. You want to be encouraged by the word and by those sisters that are there. But hopefully you're also go, going to that study ready to go to work, to labor, to see Christ formed in your sisters in Christ. All that we do in the church is for these ends, to glorify God and to see Christ formed in one another. So you should ask, who am I helping to follow Jesus? Who are you laboring over to see Christ formed in them? To whom are you saying, become as I am, follow me as I follow Jesus? That may sound arrogant, but it doesn't need to be an arrogant thing to say. I hope that you can see that by, by following Jesus and coming to church and participating in worship, you are doing the work of the ministry. You're encouraging others. So you're already doing this by being a faithful Christian. I think Paul just wants us to ask, how can I grow in this? I'm already coming and I'm edifying the saints by confessing our faith together and singing our songs and listening attentively to God's word. How can I grow in working to see Christ formed in my brothers and sisters? The most loving thing we can do for one another is to follow Christ with our whole hearts. If there's a secret to church growth, this may be it. A church full of Christians laboring with all their might to help others follow Christ. The pastor I mentioned a few minutes ago, Dick Lucas, said that we often look for the wrong signs of divine activity. He said, well, God is, of course, free to work without using human agents. The normal evidence of God at work is simply his servants at work. The normal evidence of God at work is God's servants at work. Paul is saying, become like I am, sold out for the gospel, totally devoted to the truth, laboring with all my might to see Christ formed in the Galatians. We should be the same. Become like Paul is, sold out for the gospel. The final plea from Paul is to remember your birth story. If you have kids, you know how much your kids like to hear their birth story, right? To see the pictures of the hospital and to know, like, I was there, but I don't remember it, right? And, you know, if there's something special about it, all, all the better, right? If there was a, a race to the hospital or, or a dramatic saving thing the doctor did, it, it's amazing to think about where you came from. 
Well, the birth story Paul wants to tell us is one of those amazing stories. It's one of those miraculous salvation stories. It's a story that's built on the fabric of Scripture itself. So Paul goes back to the origin story of Israel, to Sarah and Abraham, and how God had promised to give them a child. And he does so to recount the miraculous, liberating work God did through them and ultimately through Christ. So Paul calls us to live in freedom and to live in freedom by remembering our birth story. So let's read chapter 4, verses 21 and following. Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Well, this passage is challenging. If you don't remember the story, it's challenging. And if you do remember the story, it's challenging. So we have to wonder, why is Paul using this story to make this point? Let's try to trace the steps of Paul's argument. First, just remember the story itself. I mean, you remember how Abraham's family came to be, right? Abraham and Sarah were old, and God had made them a promise, a promise that they were going to have children, and not just children, but Abraham was going to be the father of a huge family, of, of a great nation, of many nations. But again, they're old, and Sarah had never been able to have a baby. Unexplained infertility, we'd call it today. But what we need to see is that God is promising here to do something miraculous, to bring life out of their barrenness, life where there was no life. But Abraham and Sarah grew impatient with God's promise, and they came up with a plan to get a baby on their own. Sarah gave her slave, Hagar, to Abraham, and Hagar conceived and gave birth to a son they named Ishmael. This was, in a sense, Abraham's version of Adam's fall into sin. Abraham and Sarah did what seemed right in their own eyes, but it was not God's plan. But in this case, God did not exile them. He didn't cast them aside. He kept his promise. In Genesis 18, after their sin in chapter 16, the Lord himself appears to them and says, I'm going to keep my promise, with Sarah laughing in the next tent. But God kept his promise. It comes true. Sarah does eventually conceive. She bears a son miraculously, and he's called Isaac. So this is the story Paul is referencing here. You can read it in Genesis 16 through 22. So that's where we begin with this story. The son came by promise, Isaac. The son that came by the flesh, Hagar and Ishmael. Step two is to see the analogy that he's making, and first to see the analogy to Hagar. Hagar here represents our human attempts to save ourselves. In this way, Paul says that she represents the old covenant law. And he makes it really clear for us in verses 24 and 25. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar, right? No confusion, right? Now Hagar is Mount Sinai. He repeats himself. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. It's really clear, but it's also really shocking, because God is now tying his own law, the one he gave on Mount Sinai, to the slave woman, to Hagar. And he's, Paul is also very careful to say, 
present-day Jerusalem, or Paul's Jerusalem, that's also tied to Hagar and slavery and Mount Sinai. The, so the Jerusalem that crucified Jesus, the Jerusalem that's the center of Judaism, that's represented by Hagar and slavery. And so he's saying, Galatians, when you think of justification by the law, when you think of what you're trying to do, you need to think of Abraham's pathetic, sinful attempt to make God's promise come true through his own wisdom and effort through the sin with Hagar. That's what he wants the Galatians to think. Now, Paul says here that he's using an allegory, but it's important that we distinguish what Paul means from what you might think of as allegory. Right? For us, allegory is, is fiction. You know, Pilgrim's Progress tells this journey, an allegorical story of a, this man named Christian from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's, it's all symbols. It's all made up. Now, there, it has a true meaning, but it's not, there's no historical reference that it's pointing to. Right? There's no city in England called Vanity Fair that the pilgrim traveled through. So allegory is a made-up illustration invented often to make some kind of moral point. That's not what Paul means. Right? For him, Hagar and Sarah are real people. God really did give a miraculous baby to Sarah and Abraham. It's not a made-up story. For Paul, he's referring back to a historical event, and he's digging into the meaning of that event and applying that meaning to the Galatian situation and, in a sense, to our situation. The sinful attempt by Abraham to have a child by the slave woman is echoed in our own attempts to save ourselves by obeying the law. So that's the first part of the allegory, step two. Step three is now to look at the Sarah part of the allegory. And it's interesting here that Paul never mentions Sarah. I think there's reasons for that. He simply calls her the son of the, or the, he calls her the free woman. Now here Paul makes a move that we, as readers of the Bible, would almost never make. But that's not because Paul played fast and loose in Scripture and we know how to do our grammatico-historical exegesis and we're more careful. No, the, the reason Paul is doing what he's doing is because Paul knows his Bible way better than any of us do. So Paul turns to Sarah, not simply as the mother of Isaac, but as the mother of the new Jerusalem meaning the mother of all those who were once slaves but are now freed by the gospel. Amen. And the reason Paul can do this is because he's looking at Sarah, not just directly at Genesis, he's looking at Sarah through the lens of the prophet Isaiah. So here's a Bible fact for you that I didn't know until preparing this sermon. Sarah is only mentioned in the Old Testament in two books of the Bible, Genesis and Isaiah. So in Isaiah 51, verse 2, the Lord is speaking to his people, and he's speaking to them as if they've already been restored, that, as if they're righteous. And he tells them, you need to, if you want to know where your salvation came from, look to the Lord. He says, look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham. Look to Sarah, your mother. So we're going to do a little journey through Isaiah here. First, Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 3. The Lord says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, your, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord, Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. So Sarah is referenced here in conjunction with this, this reversal, this transformation of, of waste and desert to Eden, the garden of the Lord. In this same chapter, Isaiah 51 and verse 17, he then links this to Jerusalem. He calls his people Jerusalem. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. This was Jerusalem. They were the Jerusalem who was drunk on the Lord's wrath. But then in a few verses later, verse 21, he says, Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, 
your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. Then a few verses later at the beginning of chapter 52, he calls his holy city, the children of Sarah, to live in freedom. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust, be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So Isaiah is proclaiming freedom to the new Jerusalem, this daughter of Sarah, who's been renewed by God's miraculous work. Now, if you know anything about Isaiah, Isaiah 53 should stand out, right? That's the the prophecy of Jesus who comes to, to take our sins upon himself, to be pierced for our transgressions, to be, to, to by his stripes we are healed, right? So right in the middle of this prophecy of Sarah and Jerusalem is the prophecy of the suffering servant who atones for his people's sins. So why are we going into all this background? Well, because in Galatians chapter 4, verse 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. So he's moved from the the free woman who is Abraham's wife to talking about Jerusalem who's from above and been set free and now he's he's going to quote Isaiah 54 1 for it is written rejoice O barren one who does not bear break forth and cry aloud you who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband this is the final step in Paul's argument look at where you've come from God is saying through Paul, this is the rock from which you were cut. I have been working a miraculous plan from creation and through Sarah and Abraham, and I've been walking every step of the way with my people. And you, you Galatian Christians, you, Christ our Savior Baptist Church, you are here today because I performed a miracle through my gospel. The barren one has borne a multitude. And you, brothers, are like Isaac, children of promise. So, believers, we are the new and better Isaacs, children of the new Jerusalem. And we are born because God sent his Son and his Spirit to give us new life. So all this leads to Paul's dramatic conclusion. So if you're the new and better Isaac, born of the free woman, it's time to cast out the slave woman and her son. These words were spoken by Sarah in Genesis when Ishmael is laughing at Isaac. But now it's as if God himself is saying them. God is saying the way of justification by the law, of trying to earn your place by your good works, that way has no place in your lives. The entire storyline of scripture has brought you to this point. You are children of promise. So brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's the dramatic punchline. You are free. Live as free people. Freedom. Does that describe your Christian life? Do you know that? You are free in Christ? Free from the wrath of God? The cup of God's wrath that was intended for you, Christ snatched it out of your hand and he drank it himself. He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We should have been the ones nailed to the cross, but Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He died to free us from sin and from the condemnation of the law. Have you come to know that Jesus died for you, that he had your sins in mind when you hung there on the cross. Do you believe that Christ died for you? Are you living in that freedom? Again, if you're a Christian, you didn't become one by your own work. No one becomes a Christian by our fleshly efforts. We don't become a Christian by imitating what Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar. That way only brings death. If you're a Christian, you're one because of God's miraculous saving work through Jesus Christ. He sent the Son, he sent the Spirit to free you to walk in newness of life. 
We have already said the Christian life is hard work, a struggle, one that Paul knew very well, but it's a joyful work. It's the work that free people do because the gospel is so precious. So Paul calls the Galatians to stand firm in freedom. Not to listen to those voices that would pull us away from freedom. The voices of legalistic preachers will pull you away from freedom and say, do things my way. Or you might have that well-meaning, good-intentioned friend, that Christian friend who is always giving you too much advice to do things her way. But more often than not, the pull away from Christ's freedom comes from inside our own hearts. Whether our friends are pushy or not, we compare ourselves and think, well, maybe I should be doing it her way. Maybe I'd be happier and and have a better Christian life if I was like them, or maybe I'd feel closer to God if I was just more disciplined and, and sinned less. Discipline and fighting sin are good things, but we enslave ourselves when we think that we must clean ourselves up to know God's love. Wherever you find yourself today, there's freedom. Freedom for you in Christ. You're not a slave, but a son, because the son loved you and gave himself for you. So let us stand firm in freedom together, gathered around Christ's cross. Let's point to Christ and say, Brother, look to Jesus. And see God's love. Sister, look how your sins have been taken away. There is no more wrath for you because Christ came for you. Don't turn back to slavery or ignorance. Look to the rock from which you are hewn and stand firm on Christ, the solid rock. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would indeed fill our eyes with Jesus, the one whom you sent, the one who shows us your righteousness and and love and shows us that we can be forgiven and made right with you. We thank you as your beloved children that you have poured out your love into our hearts by your spirit. And we pray that you will help us first to live in freedom but also to minister the freedom of the gospel to each other. Help us to love and serve one another until we see Christ formed in each other. We pray this all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.